starting at verse 3 to the end of uh, chapter 7. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, and then put foreign gods and the Astaroth from you, from among you, and direct your heart to to the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Astaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah, Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and, offer, and offered it as a, whole burning, as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the, Lord, to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that the day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Bathkar. And Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekon to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel Samuel judged all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mesphah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built an altar. For the last few weeks, we've been been, uh, talking about how God has defeated Israel, and then how God has defeated the false god of the Philistines, and then how God defeated the Philistines and oppressed the Philistines, and then about how God defeated Israel again. And just week after week, it's been defeat and defeat and defeat and defeat. And today, we get to praise and we get to victory. So this is going to be a great Sunday because praise and victory always comes after defeat when God defeats us. I think back to the years 2016, 2017, and 2018. I think these, these were the worst years of my life. Um, 
a, a living hell or hell on earth is, is, is how I think about these years. Um, I had my dreams for ministry, my, my vision for my ministry, what I wanted it to be, and I, and I set out to you know, make this a, a reality. And at every, at every turn, God just he defeated me. And I felt like God himself was standing against me. Nothing I wanted happened. My vision was not coming true. God was taking me in a different direction entirely. We ended up serving a couple of church bodies that were really the unhealthiest church bodies that we, that we ever served. And they, they really didn't like people. They didn't like new people coming into the church because that meant change. You know, we always say, oh, we want to grow, but then there's, as soon as we start growing, there's growing pains, and people don't like that, so they end up hating people, right? And so they hated people, and then they hated just the Word of God being taught, and even uh, people, leaders in these churches, I would just read a text of Scripture and not uh, elaborate on it at all, and they would say, well, that's not right. I don't agree with that, and I'm just like, Jesus Jesus said that. You have to argue with Jesus. Like, I, Jesus said it. And it really just ended up being some of the, the worst years from our perspective that we had. The end of 2018 comes, and we, we receive a call from this amazing church. We're still here. <laughs> we, we receive a call from this amazing church, and uh, this church loves the Word of God. And this church loves people and wants to serve people and we've been so blessed in our time here when i think back to 2016 and 2017 and 2018 i notice that these are the years in which i probably grew the most as a christian and these are the years in which i i probably grew the most in my understanding of who god is and in sound doctrine and in what the Bible actually has to say. I remember speaking with one of my mentors, and he said all of the stuff that has happened, it's Katie's uncle, it's, it's Katie's uncle, Billy Elkins. Billy Elkins, if you watch this later, hey, I'm talking about you. But I was talking to him, and, and he said all the stuff that has happened to you guys in these years, he said if that would have happened to me when I was your age, brand new in ministry, brand new as a pastor, he said he, said, he, said he would have just left the ministry. And I thought about it. And as I thought about it, I, I came to a realization of my own sin and my own depravity and my own wretchedness and my own... The fact that I was undeserving of anything that God would have to give, yet God gave it anyway. And that God actually caused us to walk in these valleys for our preparation in the gospel and in the word. And then, and then after this, I remember we're at Katie's parents' church. This is that month we spent in Georgia before we, we actually came here in view of a call. And, and we're, we're sitting in church and we're singing. And there's, there's nothing different about the music than usual. It's the same sort of music. But I'm, I'm weeping. And it's like the deepest worship that I've ever experienced. And I notice all the other people around. I'm like trying to hide my face because I don't want people to see me like crying while I'm singing these songs. I'm supposed to be a man. We don't cry when we sing. Please. But I experienced like the deepest praise that I have ever experienced in my life. And it, it had nothing to do 
with the type of music, with the style of, of music. It was just that God completely ruined my life. God completely ruined the plans that I made. God humbled me, brought me to repentance, to a realization of, of who He was in everything. And then, seeing more clearly than I did before, I experienced true praise. And I had experienced it before, but I, I didn't remember what it felt like and everything that was happening. This is the part of the story we read today in First Samuel. We've been talking about how God has defeated His people Israel and the Philistines and His people Israel again. He had to do it twice. Israel is so hard-headed, just like me, right? And probably just like some others in this room. I won't say any names. <laughs> but God defeated Israel twice. And now, finally, Israel is coming to a place where the nation is repenting under the leadership of Samuel, the final judge. We're going to look at this text in three parts. First, we'll look at verses 3 through 6, and we'll see what real repentance is. What does it really mean to repent? Then we will look at verses 7 through 14, and, and we will see what real and true celebration is. What does it mean to celebrate when we come together? And then we'll look at verses 15 through 17. And this, these three verses just sum up the entirety of Samuel's ministry. Verses 3 through 6, real repentance. Real repentance. Look at verse 3 with me. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. If you return to the Lord... With all your heart. This is this is repentance. Now remember before this in, in Beth Shemeth, Beth Shemesh, the Beth Shemites, when the Ark of the Lord was returned to the land and they started celebrating by religious means and they started doing some things that looked religious, but they didn't actually honor God. They were religious, but they were lost people. They weren't part of this this remnant of Israel And God came and God stood against them. And, and some translations of Scripture say more than 50,000 people died. Some translations will say like 5 out of 1,000 or 70 out of every 1,000 or 50 out of every 1,000 or one-fifth of the people died. And it can be translated any of those ways accurately in the English. But God came and He just devastated His people, ruined His people again because they were coming together. Um, it'd be like us doing church, right, and coming together and having this big celebration, but we're not honoring God in our celebration. We're just, we're just having music to have music, and we're just doing some religious stuff so that we can do religious stuff, and it just, it just looks good and feels good, but that's really all it is. We're not actually honoring God. God comes and He actually stands against even His chosen people, even the visible church here, even Israel. So the Beth Shemites, they, they send the ark somewhere else, right? And the people who receive the ark after the Beth Shemites this, in this city, 
they are selfless as they receive the ark. God has, God has ruined His people enough. God has defeated His people enough. Now we recognize that we are, we are like dust before God. And there's nothing we have to offer God. And we can't be religious enough for God. And we can't, we can't do, just do things that look like they accord with God's law and hope that God will be appeased. And there's this, this moment of repentance and I just want to talk for a moment about what repentance actually is according to Scripture. Some will say that repentance is just apologizing, and some will extrude that a little bit further and say that repentance is uh, saying you're sorry, but then turning around and going the other direction. But I think Scripture actually gets at a, a deeper meaning of repentance for our lives. And maybe, maybe that's a good place to start, but Scripture actually gets at a, a place that is that is deeper in meaning. We think about all of these things that God has done with the nation of Israel, and even with, with a people who are not called by His name, the Philistines, right? Defeat after defeat after defeat. God has come and He has made His people humble. His people weren't going to do this on their own, right? They weren't going to choose to be humble. It wasn't something that they were going to do of their own volition, uh, of their own muster. God had to come and He had to, to ruin His people. And then after God ruins His people, He calls His people to return to Him, to stop relying on their own righteousness, to stop relying on their own religious Works to stop relying on their priests. In the first part of 1 Samuel, we saw the priests are insufficient. We saw it twice with Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and then with the, the, the priests, the Levites, and Beth Shemesh, right? They were all committing the same sin, all falling short in the same way. Because the priests were insufficient to atone on behalf of the people, or to make atonement on behalf of the people. The people of God needed something more. There needed to be repentance, this coming out of self-righteousness, of unrighteousness, and this being clothed in the righteousness of God. And so this has all been a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So God calls the people to repentance. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Here in this text, we see that God actually had to work out the repentance of his people. It wasn't something that they were capable of, of doing. And this is this fits the theme of 1 Samuel, right? The theme of 1 Samuel is God's sovereignty and God's providence in all things. The fact that God is building a people for himself and establishing the throne of Christ through Saul and David, which we get to begin that part of the narrative next week. The Old Testament and the New Testament agree on this doctrine, the, the doctrine of regeneration and the doctrine of repentance. Now look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And 2 Timothy is, is this letter that Paul wrote to his student Timothy. And Timothy was, he was depressed because his own ministry was being ruined. 
right? And so he was experiencing this thing called ministerial depression. People were complaining about him. People were criticizing what he was teaching. People were trying to take over the churches that he was, he was leading. Uh, this was really an unhealthy time for the church in Ephesus. And so Paul writes this letter to his student Timothy in order to encourage him to keep the faith, stay true to the word, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul writes this, The Lord's bondservant. If you go back to the second verse here in chapter 2, the bondservant refers to faithful men who are responsible for transmitting the Word of God during the church gathering. And these were the faithful men that Timothy was training up to to transmit the Word of God to people. The Lord's bondservant, these faithful men, must not be quarrelsome. Don't pick a fight. They must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So it's not, not this overbearing like, oh, you're wrong and I'm right and we're going to do things this way. No, it's this, this patient endurance, this pleading with people to believe what the Bible says, this pleading with people that, hey, maybe we need to do things a little bit differently and we need to evaluate ourselves in a, in a gentle way according to Scripture and, and to, to, to bring people alongside us as we all pursue Jesus Christ together, gently correcting those who are in opposition. Why do we do things this way? Why are we not overbearing as elders of the church or other teachers within the church or other people in the church who, who maybe have some influence that has been given by, by God? Why are we this way? Why do we do this with gentleness? Because perhaps, according to verse 25, God may grant them repentance. Do you get the wording there? The order of words is, is kind of important, right? And Paul was very particular about the way that he ordered words when he was writing his, his letters. He thought very carefully about this. He was, he was trained in Hellenistic philosophy. He knew how to form an argument that God may grant repentance. So even in the New Testament, we see that this, this thing, repentance, it's something that is worked out by God according to God's providence. This is what we see happening with the Israelites in 1 Samuel. This is what I've experienced in my own life. And if you know Jesus, I think you've, you've probably experienced this too, right? That repentance is a gift. A gift from God. And it does us no good to say, oh, you have to repent and you have to come up with this thing and in order to please God, you have to apologize to Him and you have to... No, that's, that's just works-based righteousness repackaged, right? Repentance is, is a gift from God. Those who love God, those whom God loves, are brought to repentance by God. And He's the one who is working together the events in our lives so that, so that He might bring His people to genuine repentance out of their own self-righteousness, out of their own works, and into His grace, being clothed in His righteousness alone. 
the second part of verse 25 here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul even says that this repentance that is a gift from God actually leads to the knowledge of the truth. We wonder why so many people who claim to be Christians don't seem to know a thing about God or what the Bible actually says. The Christian life begins with repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. And out of repentance comes proper knowledge, a knowledge of the truth, an understanding of who God is and what God is doing. And then verse 26, we see that this repentance, which is a a gift from God, actually causes the people of God to come to their senses and escape from the snare of the Devil. This means that people who have not been gifted repentance from God are under the snare, the trap of the devil. And according to the final, the last part of verse 26 here, they have been held captive by him, the devil, to do his will. And so the whole Christian life depends, hangs on whether or not God gives us repentance as a gift. And those people who do not receive this repentance as a gift, this, God, I am so sorry for who I was and and what I have done and the sin in my life and my depravity, and I'm so sorry for trying to do this thing on my own and trying to be good enough and trying of my own muster and my own strength just to be obedient, to try and earn some sort of favor with you. I'm, I'm so sorry for doing that. Those who, who do not experience repentance like this, Scripture says they are under the snare of the devil and that they are actually held captive. And the word captive here means like a slave. Held captive by him, the devil, to do the devil's will. So there there are two types of people in the world, right? Those who are not repentant, under the trap of the devil, doing the will of the devil, and those who have been given the gift of repentance under the victory of Christ and doing the will of God, the Father. And these are the two categories of people we see throughout the text of Scripture. And repentance is a gift from from God. Repentance is is not just doing a 180 and and running from from our sin. Right? Sometimes we can appear to be doing that, but it's, it's entirely like works-based. Like, I am willing myself not to look at that anymore, not to taste that anymore. I am, I am willing myself not to be angry and not to be hateful and to try and be this other way. That's just another form of works-based righteousness, which is the very thing. That's the, that's the trap of Satan. That is the trap of the devil. And that is the will of the devil, according to Scripture, especially in Second Timothy. But if repentance is given to the people of God as a gift, when we receive repentance, then like with the nation of Israel here in our, our passage for today in First Samuel, then there is this turning. There is this returning to the Lord. The changing of our hearts the reorienting of our, of our lives such that our motivation changes, our desires change, and we're changed from the inside out. 
there's a restructuring of the way that we do life. There's a restructuring of the way that we spend money. There's a restructuring of the way that we spend our time. There's a restructuring of the way that we think about things, even the things that the Bible has to say. There's a restructuring in the way that we think about others and the way that we care for others. And there's a restructuring in our level of generosity. All this complexity that we seem to bring to our own lives or the world seems to put on us. There's just this restructuring, a simplification of these things, decluttering of all the things that we, we don't really need in this life. And this is, this is not the root of true faith. That would be workspace righteousness, right? But as God gives the gift of repentance, changes our hearts, regenerates us, brings us to Himself, then all of this restructuring is this natural outflowing of what God has. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 45, we see, of course, we see Peter's famous sermon at Pentecost. And we see people receive the word. The word cuts them deeply, goes to the heart, cuts between bone and, and marrow. And the people respond by saying, what do we do in response to this? Of course, Peter's first thing is repent. So there it is, repentance, right? But as God brings His people who are chosen at this time in Acts, the day of Pentecost, to, to repentance, then we see this natural outpouring in the way that the people do church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through, through 45. They, these people who were cut to the heart by the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and responded in, with repentance, they were continually devoting Themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is Bible teaching, the teaching of God's word, not the words of some preacher or or pastor, but the explanation and application of God's word. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to coming together to the church gathering, not neglecting meeting together. They were devoting themselves to this. I bet this took quite a change. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread weekly, and this is a reference to to the observance of the Lord's Supper, the weekly breaking of bread, and they were devoted to prayer or the prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, verse 44, and and all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began, there's a restructuring going on here, and they began selling their property and possessions, just selling it, selling their property and possessions, and, and we're sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This isn't, this isn't the way we think, first of all, as 21st century Americans. The capitalism that we get to experience, the consumerism that we get to experience, we're storing all the money we can away, and we're gathering all the things that we can and we see that the movement of the gospel when we come to repentance actually reorients the way that we do all things, not just spending money or organizing finances, but the way that we organize our time and spend our time and everything else in life, the things that we choose to do and the way that we choose to do them. This is what is happening with the people of Israel in this passage of Scripture. 
And this is the way the work of God is described throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible. And then God's promise is this, if you return, if there is repentance in your life, of course, as worked out by God, if there is repentance in your life, then you will experience victory. And of course, God is the one who defines what this victory looks like. Verses 4 through 6, here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. They followed through. This was genuine. This was real. This was true repentance. God had ruined them and brought them to repentance. They removed the idols. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Repentance. We have sinned. A recognition of sin. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. When we repent, genuine, true, real repentance, there are a couple of things that happen. First of all is this recognition of our sin. We have sinned. Second of all, there is this action, a giving up of our idols. Right? Idols don't necessarily have to be like the Baals and the Ashtoreth here. Idols can be a number of things. The materialistic things that we spend money on. Money itself for some people. Our time can be an idol in our lives. Sometimes we get angry because we plan to spend a day doing nothing, right? Oh, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to spend a day doing nothing. And then something comes up. Can I have to do this stuff? <laughs> Idolatry, right? And it seems like such a small thing to us, but this is idolatry. The things that we love in God's place and the things that we would choose over the things of God and the things that we would be devoted to above or before being devoted to the things of God sitting under the correct and right preaching of God's word fellowship with the body of believers with Christ's body the weekly observing of the Lord's Supper, the prayers, praying together. These are the things that a repentant heart causes us to devote ourselves to. And it's not just something that we can muster, convince ourselves to do, right? It has to be worked out by God. He ruins us, brings us to repentance, and then gives us victory. And this is the, the whole reason that we can even come together and sing Right, singing this offering praises to our God in celebration that comes after repentance logically maybe not like chronologically but logically we can't do it unless there's repentance genuine repentance in our hearts it doesn't mean anything unless there's genuine repentance in our, in our hearts and this is what we see with the nation of Israel here repentance we're sorry a removal, actual removal of the idols, a reorienting of one's life. And here in this text, this is accompanied by fasting. And in Scripture, we see fasting take place during, during two 
different times throughout our lives, or two different types of times. One of these is times of repentance and mourning and grieving over sin. And the other time is, is during times of spiritual preparation for the road ahead. And those are the two types of times we see fasting throughout the Scriptures. And here in this text, repentance is so deep. And the Israelites are grieving over their sin that, that they fast. And Samuel instructs them to fast, to go without the necessities of life because this is what reminds us of our insufficiency. This is what reminds us that we don't have in and of ourselves what is necessary for life. So we fast and remind ourselves of this depravity and this great need for grace because we are grieving over our sin. We have sinned against the Lord. Think about revival. If I were to ask you to describe what a revival meeting is like, what would you say? How would you answer? Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. It's energetic and you have all sorts of stuff going on and you have a loud preacher, you know, hold on. You have a loud preacher shaking his Bible in the air and telling you to, to walk an aisle and say a prayer and come and be baptized or come and be healed or something like that. And you have some really good music or, or maybe you picture like a Billy Graham crusade and, and all of the hype that was involved with that and the Billy Graham style preaching and teaching. And I'm not saying anything against Billy Graham here. I'm just saying that true revival isn't necessarily what we think it is. To really be revived is to be vived again. Does that make sense? To be vived again, to be revivified, vivification, the giving of life. And according to Scripture, this doesn't happen by creating a lot of hype or by some some preacher yelling at a bunch of other people or by my convincing you to... Come to the front. Bow your knee right here at the altar and say this amazing prayer. And nobody's coming down, so we'll tell our musicians to just carry on a little longer and we'll see. Are you sure? Nobody wants to come down. And I don't know how beneficial that is. I think God can use that as long as we're careful not to manipulate people, right? We never want to manipulate people. But true revival, the true revival doesn't look like that. And it's, it's usually not very loud because we're grieving over our sin and repentance. And when we repent to God and God gives a victory of life, that's a revival. That's to be revived, revived again. That is what it means. And I hope this morning we will experience revival, and I hope every week we will experience genuine revival. This is what the Bible does in our lives, right? It's the reason we come together, to be vived again. The next church we plant, let's name it Vive Again Church. Can we do that? Nobody will know what that means. (laughs) They'll say, they'll say, what is that? It'll it'll be like a curiosity draw. They'll be like, what does that mean? I need to go check that place out. Oh, wait, we're not supposed to be attractional in our ministry. Never mind. 
Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Here the text gives us a clue as to Samuel's role at this time, during his ministry, during, during these years. Samuel was serving as the final judge. We remember we're in this transitionary moment between the judges and the kings. Next week we're going to see Israel's first king, Saul, anointed. Samuel is serving as the final judge. And the judges, through the book of Judges, and here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the judges did two things. First of all, they sat as the discerner of Israel. They, they judged the people of Israel. Secondly, it was their job to lead the nation of Israel, kind of like a king, and to deliver the nation of Israel from the nation's oppressors. And God would appoint the judge over Israel for each generation. And here Samuel is serving as the last of the judges. Verses 7 through 14, real and true celebration, which comes out of real repentance. Verses 7 and 8, Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They just lost against the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. We notice something different about the way Israel is approaching battle now after they have been defeated by God and, and brought to repentance. Before they were like, oh, we've got this. Our God is powerful. Let's go in and let's kick the Philistines' butt like we usually, usually do, right? And they go in and they lose. Then they say, oh, the Lord defeated us before the Philistines. Go get the ark and the ark will deliver us the next time we go into battle. Here they just say, Samuel, cry out to God for us that He may deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. They make this confession in the sovereignty of God that is amazing here. We saw the same sort of confession in Hannah's prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, right? Hannah came, repented, offered this sin, this guilt offering to the Lord, and Eli, the priest, offered this on, on her behalf. And then after she, after she sought this atonement, redemption, after she repented, then there's this amazing prayer from Hannah all about the sovereignty of God and how it is God who brings low and raises up and sends to Sheol and it is God who gives victory and God who gives defeat and God who gives the barren woman many children and silences the tongue of the woman who has many children, something to that effect. And here with the Israelites, we see God ruined them, defeated them, brought them to repentance and the people repented, turned from their idols and then there's this confession again in the sovereignty of God. It's like when God brings His people to repentance, gives them this, this gift of repentance, the confession that comes out of that is that God is sovereign. God is the one who provides all things. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote his letter to the believers in Rome, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 he says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, the, the New Testament message, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, agrees entirely with what God is doing in the Old Testament. That people who come to repentance recognize the sovereignty of God, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we need to know something about Romans chapter 10 because it's so easy to pluck Romans chapter 10 verse 9 out of context and say something like, you must make God Lord of your life. Uh, Wait, the rest of the Bible says that I'm not able to do that. (laughs) You must make God Lord of of your life. You must turn and, and serve God with your life if you want to be saved. And this is what it means to confess that Christ is Lord. No, Christ is already Lord. God is already sovereign, right? When we read on in Romans chapter 10, following verse 9, just read the rest of the chapter, and Paul is working out this argument where he says, people have heard what God has to say through the Bible. Beautiful, beautiful is the one who proclaims this word. Beautiful are the feet who take this word to to people. People have heard the word and they rejected it. They were unable to accept it. And this is why God, who is sovereign, is revealing Himself to people who do not seek after Him. That's the whole argument of Romans chapter 10. God is revealing Himself to people who do not seek after Him. And so to take Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and say, you must make Christ your Lord, or you must turn and serve Him if you want to be saved. It's out of context, it's wrong, it's false. And I have to repent because there was a time when I taught it that way because that is what I heard growing up. But then you just read the Bible and the message is different. Right? What does it mean to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? It means the same thing that it means here in 1 Samuel. Repentance is being given as a gift. And that from my repentant heart, like in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that we read, I'm coming to a correct knowledge of God's sovereignty. Coming to a knowledge of the truth, particularly regarding God's sovereignty and providence in salvation, in life, in death, in victory, and in defeat. And in all of the events, or over all of the events of this world, In fact, if we take Romans chapter 10, verse 9 seriously, and I think we should, it's in the Bible, right? It's it's the Word of God. This means that if I have not come to this understanding that God is already sovereign, that it is God who is working all things together, and Paul said that earlier, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God is the one working all things together, that God is the one bringing me to repentance. If that's not my understanding that God is sovereign in this way, and I am trying to in some way make Jesus Lord, or of my own volition, of my own muster, just try do all the stuff that God wants me to do so that I'm good with Him, then according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, I probably, probably do not have a heart of repentance that is given by God, which means I'm probably not saved. Because those who receive repentance do come to this knowledge of the truth that God is sovereign and that God has all providence and the scriptures are clear about that. 
we can't escape that and we can't argue against that without arguing against the Bible itself. That's a hard realization to make because there are a whole lot of people who claim to be Christians who don't believe in the sovereignty of God who haven't confessed, made this confession that Christ is Lord. And that is devastating. We ought to fear for those who claim to be our brothers and sisters but believe something other than that. We ought to pray for them lovingly, carefully, gently share the truth. Invite them into Scripture with us. Be patient through all of the debates because people really like to argue. I really like to argue, so I know that people really like to argue. But this is what Scripture calls us to, and this is what repentance brings us to. The Israelites came to know this instead of trusting in their own sufficiency now, instead of trusting in their their own self-righteousness now, which is unrighteousness according to the Bible. Instead of trying to win the battle on their own, instead they just submit to the will of God. Samuel, pray for us. May God deliver us. And we submit ourselves to His will. So, in repentance then, there is this First of all, this awareness of our own sin. Confession in the sovereignty of God. And then a submission to God's will in all things, however God would work it out. Here's what repentance brings us to. Verses 9 through 12. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder. This was no ordinary thunder. He thundered with a great thunder. I heard some of that last night. Thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were rooted before Israel, or routed. What do you guys say here in Arizona? Rooted or routed? routed. Or you say, you go to Sonic and you order a Route 44, but you drive on Route 66. Whatever. <laughs> they were rooted before Israel. At least they're not rutted. At least, <laughs> right, at least they're not rutted. Nice. Verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah, and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer is an Aramaic word that means the stone of help. And Samuel is setting up this stone of help, this Ebenezer, to signify that God alone is capable, sufficient to help His people, and He is entirely effective as He helps His people. I wonder today, I wonder if this is the sort of faith that we put into practice that we would say, Lord, help us, and we trust you to do so according to your will. That's a hard prayer. That's difficult submission. 
verses 13 and 14. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. This is just, just exactly, exactly like the pattern we saw in the book of Judges. Over, Israel would sin, God would defeat Israel, the judge would be appointed and deliver Israel. This is what we see with Samuel, which is kind of amazing to see. Samuel is the last judge. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the land of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. There there was no more fighting, no more quarrels. Because God was keeping the Philistines, the the Amorites. The Amorites, it's a word referring to the people in the land of Canaan. And the Philistines was, was one of these people groups. That God was keeping the Amorites and Israel from attacking one another, from being in conflict during Samuel's during Samuel's days. Fifteen through seventeen, we just see the sum of Samuel's ministry. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So eventually Samuel made his way back home, and he worked from home, and served as judge from home. But he was also on circuit. Every year he would go to at least three different cities, if not four, including Ramah, his home. And he would travel annually to these cities, all in close proximity. It wasn't like he was traveling from one end of uh, Israelite territory to the other end. It was, it was all here in the, the small plot of land that was, that was given to the tribe of Benjamin. All these cities were in this, the territory that was allotted to the tribe of, of Benjamin. And he would travel the circuit serving as judge, telling the people what God wanted them to know, discerning for the people on behalf of the people, and just leading the nation of Israel as he went on circuit here. And this will be the close of the time of the judges. And next week we will open up the, the time of the kings in Israel's history. But I want us to notice something before we leave about Samuel's ministry. All the days of his life and until it's time for a king. It seems to be very monotonous. Every year Samuel would do the same thing. He wasn't trying to get a bigger church. He wasn't trying to make more money. He wasn't trying to advance his ministry or grow his ministry. Uh, He did the same thing every year. His concern was simple. Love God. Be faithful to God and what God has called me to. And be where God wants me to be. And for Samuel, this was the same stinking thing every year. For years. God has a different place for every person. God has worked that out in our lives. 
with Samuel, we see this amazing degree of contentment. So I think this is part of repentance too, right? That when we repent, we realize how insufficient we really are. And man, we're just thankful that God would use us somewhere because we really don't have anything to offer God anyway. And this is difficult too because we like to be just a little bit prideful. And we like to think that we have something to offer and, and some marvelous way of doing things. And no, God is the one who works all things together. And contentment in my life is actually a huge sign, right, of the faith that I have in Christ. The same thing is true for all of us. Contentment is, is the fruit. And repentance is the fruit before that fruit. And God's love for His people is the root. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. So brothers and sisters, I wonder if there are any idols in our lives. I wonder if there is some reorienting that needs to take place. I wonder if this morning God is calling us, any of us, or all of us, to repentance. I wonder if there's some malcontentment in our lives. I can't believe I have to do this again today. I need to get out of here. I need to get away from this. I wonder if there is repentance that is needed. And then brothers and sisters, after repentance, after turning from these idols that we have, and God's people do have idols, we see this in the text, right? We can't escape idols while we're on this earth. They sneak up on us. We're unaware of it. And then God says, hey, should you be spending your money in that way? Should you be spending your time that way? Should you be doing that in this way? And then there's repentance, and God devastates us, brings us to repentance. And then, then after repentance and after returning from these idols that God reveals in our lives, the deepest, sweetest praise that we could ever experience. And it doesn't depend on genre of music or whatever. Just God, let me praise you for being so holy and so good to me.